Hey, good evening, friends. Uh, welcome to the table. My name is Matt Mulberg. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are absolutely psyched and grateful that you are with us tonight through this screen virtual experience as we try to do church together, much like we did church last week together, physically, socially distanced, but physically all the same in the parking lot here at Bethlehem. It was awesome, wasn't it? Didn't that feel good? Got a little chilly. felt like winter came in the middle of the service. But prior to that, and even after that with Lions, what was it called? Lions Fire? Yeah, Lions Fire. That's what I thought. Kathy Nielsen's Pizza Company. That that was amazing. I told Kathy afterwards, and I'll say it again, maybe the best pizza I've had in quite some time. And I mean that. And beautiful vision, mission, driving behind it. And so uh, we're grateful for them coming through. That was an awesome night. We're, we're hoping, I'm going to tell you this. Now keep this on the down low because we don't really have this fully locked in. Obviously weather pending and we need some permissions. But we're hoping that early November before winter fully arrives, we can do it one more time. Just get outside one more time. Bundle up and make it happen. So awesome. Thank you for coming. One announcement for you tonight. Uh, at the end of the month, we're trying to get ahead of it this year and make it not a last-minute thing. Uh, it's all Saints Day. And so our ask on our community is the same one that we extend every year at this time, that if you lost somebody this past year, that you would share that with us so that we can hold that with you. That you would send a photo of that person uh, to patty at the table, mpls.com. And in your email with that photo, you would put their name and your relationship with them in there as well. Um, that's always a special night for us. It's a, it's a sacred space where we have all been carrying these wounds throughout the year. We get to finally pause and carry them together. And so if you want to participate that, in that, we would love to have you with us there. Uh, that is my only announcement, right, Christian? Yeah. You want to stay connected? Text table to 33222. Uh, we'll keep you up to speed on all things table, including the next parking lot gathering. Um, also, if you want to be a fiscal giver and keep this thing afloat, I know that money is tight right now. I know that stress is high. But if you want to keep this community going, if you want to be uh, in our corner as we are in one another's corner, then you can give financially at the table, mpls.com. Uh, there's a giving tab on there. And um, that'll make that happen. When I said corner there and the S at the end, did it feel like there was a break in between? <laughs> like in our corner? It was weird. Yeah, it felt weird. Um, that's all we have for you for announcements. We're really excited about this next series that we're stepping into tonight called Jesus for Precedent that will lead us all the way up to the night when we are choosing the next president in our country. And tonight, Debbie Manning is going to be bringing word number one. So please enjoy, take notes, be engaged in the chat room. Uh, let's, let's have a moment together. Love you guys. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to the table tonight. My name is Debbie Manning and I'm one of the pastors here at the table. Hey, just a few weeks ago, right behind me in this backyard, we held a lay care training and we had about 13 of us there and we were learning um, some of the different ways that we might show up for one another and love one another in um, hard times. And it was a wonderful morning, but one of the things that stood out to me was that one of the people from our community that attended was newer to the community. And in asking how he ended up here at the table, this was his response. He said, what my wife and I love about the table is that you guys are small, it feels intimate, 
and you seem to be honest. And I loved that because I think we are honest. Certainly we do not claim to have all the answers and certainly those of you who have been with us for a long time, you too would say, yep, you guys don't have all the answers. But what we do have is a heart for God and a heart for others. What we do have is an allegiance to Jesus. And that's what's so amazing about being part of the table. But hey, in a spirit of that honesty, um, you may have noted that I'm coming to you from my kitchen table. So yesterday, Thursdays is our day that we uh, head over to Bethlehem Lutheran Church and we film for the weekend service. And I uh, was there and all dressed up and ready to go. And Christian was there and Matt and I filmed my message and I came back last night and there was something about it that just didn't feel right to me. And it's interesting because a little bit about our message today is about rightness, what it means to be right with God and one another. So here I am, dragged my daughter over today and we're refilming right here in my home. So um, I'm welcome to my home, glad you're with me. But where we wanted to go tonight was this. I, I will share that in um, this time that feels confused, confusing and frustrating with all the divisiveness and frankly nastiness in our country and in our politics, this has been a frustrating time, I think, for many of us. A time that has felt so discouraging. A, a time where I personally have felt really powerless. Like, where do we go in this? But what we have is that we do know where to go. And where we go in all the confusion and trying to figure out the truth is we go to Jesus. So that's where we're going tonight. We're going to Jesus. And I want to just remind us all that Jesus' message was never just about changing individual hearts, that Jesus' message and his movement was always about flipping systems, was about changing the social and political and economic systems of his time. And so much of what Jesus was about was being for the least of these, those on the underside of power. And the goal and the mission of he and his disciples was that all people would be free from oppression and hunger and poverty. And so that basis, I think, is important for us as we go forward into this season, the season where we're going to use the power that we have in the country we live in to vote. And maybe the power we have to influence others in conversations that might move toward that direction. There's a book Matt and I are both looking at in this sermon series, and it's called The Politics of Jesus. And it's written by a scholar, an activist, a minister. His name is Aubrey M. Hendricks. And this is what he has to say in looking at Jesus as a political revolutionary. Because let me say this, he was. We don't talk about that a lot in the church, and I think that's another interesting uh, message in the future. But Jesus was a political revolutionary, and, and this is what Aubrey M. Hendricks has to say about that. It means that Jesus sought not only to heal people's pain, but also to inspire and empower people to remove the unjust social and political structures that too often were the cause of their pain. It means that Jesus had a clear and unambiguous vision of the healthy world that God intended and that he addressed any issue, social, economic, or political, that violated that vision. So Matt and I are calling this series, this series that we're in for the next few weeks, running up to the election, we're calling it Jesus for Precedent, meaning that it's Jesus that's going to guide us 
that it's Jesus's example that we're going to use as we make decisions moving forward in our lives and not just in our personal lives, but in our collective lives. And that has a lot to do with politics. And in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the words and the works of Jesus. And we're going to look at what that means in our communities and in our country as well. So we're going to look at Jesus as we're ready to vote and we're going to encourage others to vote. And this is why I think this is so important. We need to be clear on where we stand and why we stand there. So let's start here. You know, in the Gospels over and over again, Jesus quotes Hebrew scripture. He obviously had a very deep knowledge and understanding of scripture. And so much of Jesus's worldview on justice and righteousness comes out of the Hebrew scriptures. There's three ideological forces that shaped Jesus's revolutionary vision. And those forces were this, sadiqa, mishpat, and hesed, meaning righteousness, justice, and steadfast love. The Hebrew Bible has two words that they use for justice, and that's mishpat, which Matt is going to be talking about next week, and sadiqa, that Hebrew word that I'll be talking about tonight. And here's the meaning of that word, righteousness. It's behavior that faithfully fulfills the responsibilities of relationship, both with God and with humanity. Or to put it another way, the, biblical, the basis of biblical justice is the fulfillment of our responsibilities to and relationships with others as the ultimate fulfillment of our responsibility to God. So when we're serving others, when we're about the greater good of others, that is how we love God. That is how we serve God, is by serving other people. And that's at the core of everything that we are called to be about. So out of the biblical notion of justice, it leads us to one of Jesus's political strategies, and that's what we're talking about tonight. And that's this, treat your neighbor and their needs as holy. Treat your neighbor and their needs as holy. And here's where we see that clearly. We see it in the Lord's Prayer. Now the Lord's Prayer is something that we repeat, recite every single Sunday night. And often we're not even thinking when we, we do that. And I have to tell you that there's been many times for me when I've been up there and I'll forget a line. And one of the stories, and some of you have heard this before, that I think about when I think about the Lord's prayers many years ago when I was first stepping into ministry and was given opportunities when I was over at Christ Presbyterian Church to lead, I was asked to lead at a midweek chapel service and lead the Lord's prayer. And I got out up there and I had what my daughter used to call brain freeze. Like for the life of me, I could not remember how that prayer started. My brain was just like, thy father, my father. I mean, and I was sweating and I was panicking and I looked over at the pastor that was mentoring me and he, his eyes were like this, like what? This isn't like a silent prayer. Finally, it came to me, our father. But it was one of those moments that I'll never forget. And then I think there's a moment we're going to show you right now when uh, our pastor, Matt Moberg, when it came to hallow be thy name, said this. Now, our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I think everything I could not to start 
dying laughing in that Lord's Prayer there because I said, Hollywood be that name. <laughs> you heard that? Did you hear my voice trembling? <laughs> I totally did. Hollywood be that name. <laughs> yep, Hollywood. That's what you heard. Hollywood be your name. So often it is something that we just sort of repeat without thinking about. But I think it's important for us to take a deep look at it. But before we do that, I just want to give you a little preface on, you know, both in Matthew and in Luke, where the Lord's prayer is for us. Um, the Jesus or the disciples asked the question, Jesus, teach us how to pray. But I want to start with saying that's not actually what they're acting because asking because in the Jewish culture, um, Jews knew how to pray. They knew how to pray. We see it in Daniel 6.10 uh, saying they prayed thrice daily. They also prayed every mid-afternoon when there was a temple sacrifice. They also uh, recited prayers at meals. They also um, constantly recited the Psalms as a prayer. So these folks, they really knew how to pray. So they weren't asking, you know, how do we do this? They didn't need a step-by-step -step guideline to do it. The other thing that is interesting is that, you know, you think about how these guys were recruited, and we know the stories of Jesus, you know, walking up and saying, hey, come follow me, and everyone dropped what they were doing, left their livelihood, left their families, and, and off they go. And part of me sort of wonders if at some point down the road, maybe after hearing the Sermon on the Mount, there was this realization like, I'm not sure we quite got what we signed up for. What exactly is the mission? And I think that's what they're asking for here. They're saying, hey, God, we're not asking you uh, what, how to pray. We're asking you what to pray for. What do we stand for? What is it that we are trying to accomplish? And more than anything, the disciples were asking Jesus what it was that they'd been chosen to help Jesus with. I think that's what they're asking. They're saying, teach us, teach us about that. And here's the thing, Jesus clearly let them know and he did it in the Lord's Prayer. Here we are, we're in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There's another version of this in Luke that's slightly different, but the meanings are the same. Treat your neighbor and their needs as holy and by trying to fulfill their needs. And that way you're serving God. And the Lord's Prayer, what's so beautiful about this, it really is a microcosm of Jesus' teaching. Jesus starts that um, prayer with our Father. Note that it doesn't say my Father. Clearly, this is not a prayer for our individual needs. And if you look at the prayer, it's always our Father. It's always our, us, or we. What Jesus is doing here is he's pointing the disciples away from a prayer that's for the, their own needs and a prayer that is actually focused on the struggle of their own people. Hallow your name or sanctify your name. It doesn't sound like much, right? Because the Jewish community, the Jewish people, God's name 
already was holy for them. But it was radical because they lived in an empire where the rules and regulations said there's only one name. There's only one name that's holy and that's Caesar's. But for this group of people, they knew that that name, the name to be hallowed, was God's. But here's what Jesus was really saying in that. He was saying to the disciples, pray, pray to God to demonstrate your holiness. Because in scripture, when you tie that holiness to God as judge, what that does is reflect a God, a God who is going to fight injustice, is going to stand for those things, is going to make things right. Your kingdom come, thy will be done. The manifestation of God's holiness, the arrival of his kingdom, the establishing of God's will. In the context of the time, what that was saying is Caesar's kingdom can no longer exist. We got to get rid of it. The status quo isn't cutting it anymore. It's not God's intention for humanity. And he goes on to say, give us our daily bread. There wasn't enough daily bread for everyone in Caesar's kingdom. There were the haves and they had more than enough, but too many people didn't have any bread. The daily need for bread was a struggle for the people that Jesus was standing with and standing for. Release us from our debts. That was another prayer that said, let's end Caesar's kingdom because it was a kingdom that was supported by a system that forced people into debt so that they could pay this annual tax, this monetary tribute to Caesar. Lead us not to temptation. Now that's kind of an interesting one because why would Jesus say that? Because God wouldn't tempt anyone. We know from scripture that God's not the tempter. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, pray to God to give you strength to resist the, te the temptation to worship Caesar, to resist the temptation to stop fighting, to stop um, engaging in the struggle against this kingdom. Make sure that you're not falling into accepting the empire and all it stands for. Now, I think that's something that's really relevant today, isn't it? Because I think for many of us, we live in this country that, you know, yeah, we feel bad and we see the disparity and we, feel, we see that there are a lot of haves in this country and a lot of have-nots, but it would be certainly easy for us, a lot easier to instead of struggling, instead of speaking up, instead of standing with, to sit back. And sometimes we get worn out, right? Just a few weeks ago, I was on my front porch with my husband and I was having a moment of real despair. It was right after uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had died and we were talking about the, the possibility of another four years of the present um, administration, the present president, and what that would mean for us as a country. And I looked over at my husband and I said, you know, probably you and I would be okay because we're middle-class or upper-middle-class white people who've had lots of privilege, lots of opportunity, will probably be okay. But friends, that's not good enough. That is not good enough. That's not what it means to be followers of Jesus. That's not what it means for us to treat all people and their needs as holy. So it's not enough. So what we just saw are some of the core principles of Jesus' ministry.
But strategically speaking, there's a few other implications that I think are really important to understand. And that's one of the things is this prayer was a universal prayer. So he's teaching the disciples something that they are going to use as, a, as guidelines and praying with other people. And it's universal. Do you notice that there's no um, pointing to anything distinctly Jewish? There's no again, prayers to the God of Abraham or any mention of Moses. There's nothing pointing to even anything distinctly like Christian as far as a, a messianic thing. So this is a universal prayer so that when those disciples grow, go out and they're meeting the needs of people, meeting the needs of people is holy, it's not limited to any group of people. So what we can take from this is that God is a God for all people. And that's a beautiful thing. And the other thing it's important to think about is forgiving debts of others. It means far more than um, standing up and speaking out against exploit, exploitive systems. It also means that we're not going to any longer participate in them, that we are going to refuse to participate in systems that actually um, have given us advantage. We live in that. So many of us live in that. I am from a system like that where I have had so many privileges and advantages. And so this is the time, friends, to own our stuff and change our practices and all of that. There's, um, you know, it's interesting when you think about the whole forgiving debts and the system in ancient times and how does that translate to, to, to today? Well, you know, let me count the ways for you because there's a lot of ways and this is what it could look like for us. It could look like refusing to put profit above people, refusing to participate in unfair business dealings, refusing to pay substandard wages, refusing to force people to work without affordable health care, refusing to charge huge interest rates or rent on people. There are so many ways I could go on and on. And I think one of the best examples of we see of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this day and age in regards to this specifically is Habitat for Humanity. Many of us know of it. It's a ministry that provides housing for people in need and they don't charge any interest on their mortgage. And on their website, they call it the economics of Jesus. And what they say is it's people acting in response to human need giving what they have without seeking profit or interest. Isn't that just totally contradictory to the capitalism that we live in? But it's not contradictory to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's something we really need to think about. So the Lord's Prayer, this Saudi qua behavior that serves God and neighbor, they're, they're tied together. But I think it's important to note, too, that this is far more the Lord's Prayer than just a microcosm of Jesus' teaching. It actually reflects Jesus' own actions. You know, so you can look at um, Jesus, and he has his own unique relationship with God. But what he understand and what he, what he understood and what he preached was that God is the Father of all people. Jesus didn't exalt himself or enrich himself above anybody else because this is what he knew. He knew that God was the father of all humanity. And so Jesus ministered to all. Poor Jews, rich people, Samaritans, even Romans. And that's an important lesson for us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus, over and over, he demonstrated soul sovereignty to God. He did that when he um, said that Caesar's kingdom must come to an end. 
He rejected the legitimacy of temple priesthood, a priesthood that actually lined up more with um, Caesar and the empire than it did with, with God's kingdom, which was about liberation and freedom. He did that by refusing to accept the kingship that 5,000 of his followers wanted to put upon him. And I think the most poignant moment that we see Jesus claim the sole sovereignty of God is at the very end of his life and when he's with Pontius Pilate. And what he says to him is, you have no power over me unless it's been given to you by above. It's pretty amazing. And then give us our daily bread and release our debts. Over and over again, we see Jesus feeding the hungry and encouraging everyone else to do so as well. And the way that um, debts is tied to that is so many of those people were hungry, so many of those people didn't have bread because they were tied to this crushing debt system that they couldn't get out of. So they didn't have enough to eat. And Jesus over and over again denounced that system. What do you what he told the people is Caesar's cruel economy is not the caring economy of our God. In Mark 12, 17, Jesus says, render unto Caesar the things of Caesar, render unto God the things of God. Isn't it amazing all the richness and depth, let alone the teaching, the call of the Lord's prayer? There's so much to it. And then I think if we really sit in it, we might just get a little bit uncomfortable. Because I think the question we need to ask is, we see those things, we look into it, we believe it. How are we doing on living those things out? Not just personally, but collectively in the big C. And I think a lot of us definitely would feel in this culture, in this country, especially with a certain group of evangelical Christians, it doesn't quite look like that. There's a writer, his name is Joe Kay. He wrote a piece for Sojourner's magazine and he actually rewrote the Lord's Prayer. And in that, he actually challenges us to look at what we believe and how we actually live that out. And so I'm going to read that to you right now. My Father, feared be your name. My kingdom come, my will be done. On earth and heaven too. Make sure that I get everything that's coming to me. And forgive any very, very small and insignificant shortcomings that I may possibly have. But make sure that everyone else is held totally accountable and pays the full price for their shortcomings. And lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from everyone else and everything else that I think are evil. For mine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now, and it better be forever. Amen. Sounds a little bit uh, ridiculous, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but let's take it apart a little bit and see if actually some of the things that come from that, that rewritten Lord's Prayer might sound a little true to what's going on in our culture and our country right now. My father, not our father or our parents, because if we did that, that would make us all equal children of God, including those who we don't particularly like those that might come from another religion or race, race or sexual identity or age group or economic status. Calling God our Father actually invokes some responsibility that we might have to care for our brothers and sisters equally. God is 
my parent, not yours. Isn't that what it sounds like just a little bit? Feared be your name. Feared, not revered. The Lord's Prayer is talking about revering God's name, right? We revere this God of great compassion and love and social justice by being committed to those same divine qualities. Or, or do we? Because often it seems like God's used more as a weapon by Christians. Feared, not revered. My kingdom come. We've all heard about God's kingdom. We know. We know there's something inside us that knows what God kingdom, God's kingdom is about. But we don't necessarily like it. Jesus, of course, was empathetic about it. Love one another. Forgive one another. Love your enemies. If you see someone on the side of the road that needs help, you stop and you help them. Be a healer. Don't just talk about peace. Work for it. Put away your weapons. All of them. The first or last and the last will be first. Get a drink to ever, anyone who's thirsty. Give food to the hungry. And guess what? By the way, don't be judging them as to if they're worthy or not because everybody is worthy in the eyes of God. So that's God's kingdom. Do you think we live that way? And what Joe Kay says is maybe we should stop pretending. My will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's be honest, we often like what we want. We, want, we don't necessarily want things done God's way. We kind of like it our own. And hey God, if it, that's not working for you, then you need to change and you need to conform to how we think it should be. Make sure that I get everything that's coming to me. Really? Daily bread for starters? Um, I think a lot of us don't always like the giving part. Sounds a bit like charity or welfare or an entitlement program, and it makes us sound maybe a little too dependent on the grace that we get from God. And what about the implication if, if some people don't have enough of their daily bread, that the rest of us are obliged to help them get it? That we're all in this together? Uh, are we? Because I don't know if it always looks like that. Pull, your up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Work a little harder. And maybe if you worked harder, you'd actually have some bread. And keep your hands off mine, by the way, because I've earned it, all of it, all by myself. That is often the spirit that I hear coming out of people who proclaim their Christian faith. And forgive any very, very small and insignificant shortcomings that I may possibly have. Shortcomings? Well, I suppose I have some, but not too many. Because if I really believed that I came up short, I probably wouldn't be so judgmental about other people's shortcomings. Maybe I'd be more accepting and more forgiving. But make sure that everyone else is held totally accountable and pays the full price for their own shortcomings. I think we all understand what that means. And lead me not to temptation. Would you please not put me into any situations where I might have to second guess all my certainty? Don't challenge me to see beyond my self-centeredness. But deliver me from everyone else and everything else that I think are evil. Basically, anyone who's different than me or challenges me. For mine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now 
and it better be forever. Amen. I don't know. I think when we pull that apart about a little bit, it doesn't sound as ridiculous as when we first read it line by line. So the question for me is, which of those Lord's prayers do you believe in? And the second part to that question, part B is, and which one do you live out? Which one do we live out? Which one does this culture live out? Jesus had a, mo a movement and he called men and women to follow him and to love God and love their neighbors as themselves. And in this movement, all these people that followed him over his lifetime were partners in a mission. And that's who we are. We are partners in this mission, this mission that Jesus has laid out in the Lord's Prayer. Saudi caught it, it pushes us. It pushes us to treat people and their needs as holy. And so what does it mean for us to treat people and their needs in a way, in a political strategy? And it means that when we make political decisions, when we vote, when we stand up, when we speak out, when we have conversations, that everything we do is based on the common good of all people. That the question we ask are, what are the real needs of others? And in that, there's no room for self-serving. It's about people's real needs and about God's love for justice. So, our allegiance isn't to Democrat or Republican. As followers of Jesus, our allegiance is to Jesus, his words, his practices. And if that's true, then our allegiance is making sure that the poor aren't hungry, is making sure that everyone has a roof over their head and a bed to sleep in, to making sure that people have affordable health care, to making sure that there's equitable opportunity and education for everyone, no matter what color your skin is, no matter what your gender is, no matter what your sexual orientation is, no matter what your age is. That's that, what that means. And our allegiance needs to be breaking down systemic racism, to breaking down these financial systems that keep people in crushing debt, to to breaking down this capitalistic society we live in that has just gone crazy where there are so many people who have too much and way too many people who don't have enough. Because that is antithetical to the message of Jesus Christ. So as we move forward in this political season, which is far more than us voting, it's, it's about the conversations we're having, the hard ones, but the, the bridge-building ones. It's important to know where we stand and why, but I think even more important is to know who. Who is it that we stand with? Where is our allegiance? So I started this a little bit with talking about how discouraged I have been at moments. I think a lot of us have. I've had a lot of conversations. But I want to end on a uh, just beautiful moment of hope. And I want to share a letter with you. Um, Mike and Susan Pitt, they recently joined the church. They have three kids, Parker, Jack, and Paisley. And uh, they started coming to the church just a short time before we went into COVID. And then they joined the church. And Mike is on our health advisory team. And Mike and Susan shared their story on one of our midweek check-ins. And I'll always have this beautiful picture in my mind when we were doing the backpack drive of Susan walking up my um, front walk with three kids in tow and a big box of backpacks. I mean, these guys are 
generous followers of Jesus Christ who know exactly who their allegiance is to and are living that out. So thank you, Pitt family, for sharing this beautiful letter. Um, it's perfect for this message, and it's a perfect note to um, end on the hope, the hope we have in our one true king. So this is a letter that uh, Susan and Mike wrote to their daughter Paisley at her dedication. And it was written on November 20th, 2016, so a few weeks after the election. And I'm gonna read it to you now. Our dear Paisley June, you are a gift to our entire family. You've given Jack the gift of big brotherhood, which even at age two, he cherishes more than anything in his life, even his toy lions. To your sister Parker, you've given her the promise of a best friend under the same roof and an eagerness to teach her little sister the ways of the world she spent the last four years acquiring. To your mother, you've given the gift of sweetness and easy demeanor that make even those persistent 2 a.m. feeds shared moments of love. And to me, your father, you've given hope. You were born in a difficult year, a year when our country declared itself as more divided than we'd believed or at the very least had cared to admit. A year where many people who have felt marginalized or overlooked feel very much in view now for reasons that are still difficult to come to terms with. You were born in a time when uncertainty seems to be the only thing we can be certain about. But Paisley, you were also born into a family who believes in promises and hope. A family who stands before, here before our church to make a promise to you. A promise to model for you kindness, patience, and forgiveness. And a promise to fight for the vulnerable and stand for justice. Paisley, you will soon enough learn that your mom and dad are far from perfect. And we promise for you to learn from us what it looks like to seek forgiveness. Because while you, sweet Paisley, are a great gift to our family, there's an even greater gift we'll tell you about. We are a family who knows that while leaders will come and go, we have one true king. He too was born in a difficult time, a refugee forced to flee his homeland from a king who promised to kill all those that looked like him. Later, having committed no wrong, he was imprisoned because others felt threatened by him merely for speaking the truth they so needed to hear. And ultimately, though innocent, he willingly took the death sentence that we all deserve because of our desire to serve ourselves. But Paisley, the story doesn't end there. For as dark and sad as times feel now to so many, our king offers hope. He conquered death so that we could be reunited with him simply by acknowledging that our sinful choices separate us from God and that try as we might, we can't earn our way to forgiveness. We must merely accept his gift of forgiveness. Our gift to you, sweet Paisley June, is a promise to live our lives in a way to point you towards one day accepting his gift. We love you and thank God for entrusting us with one of his most precious creations. Thank you for sharing that with us. And now friends, I'll hand it over to Matt for words of institution. 
Well, as Debbie just spoke to, in this series, we're talking about three undergirding principles that grounded Jesus's political philosophy and out of which came multiple political strategies. And the call for us as we tread and we walk on this path that Christ first paved, what do we take on? What are the, the building blocks of our own foundation? I really appreciate Debbie's tonight and highlighting Jesus's dead set commitment to seeing all people's needs as holy. A need is a holy thing. And on the final night Jesus had with his friends, he recognized that their needs were many. And he looked around the table and he could feel their lumps building in their throats. And he said, guys, I will be bowing out in a moment now. The end is near. But I want you to know that just because they're going to take me away does not mean I'm going to leave you. And in the middle of the table, he grabbed a piece of bread and he lifted it up. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you guys get together and you have this meal and you take from this bread, remember me. In the same way, he lifted up a cup of wine that was also on the table and he said, guys, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of, new, of sins, the blood of the new covenant. Again, when you come around this table and you take from the bread and you drink from the wine, remember me. Remember how loved you are. And so we take on that practice 2,000 years later. That is still the central thing that we do as a community when we gather for worship on Sunday nights. And so if you are with somebody, now would be an appropriate time to grab your elements, whatever they may be. And if you're by yourself, allow me to just offer these words to you right now. This is the body of Christ, and it is broken for you. And this here is the blood of Christ, and it's shed just for you. Now together, join me as we pray the Lord's Prayer. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's worship. <laughs>